Good morning. My name is Jason Espy. I'm an elder here at Calvary. I'm going to do our scripture reading today. It's going to be Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Colossians 1, 15 through 23, it says, He, so Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body of the church. And he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, in mind engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister." May God bless the reading of his word. Uh, well, good morning, friends. Thank you for being here. I would encourage you to keep your finger there in Colossians chapter 1. To be honest with you, I don't really know where to begin. Uh, my mind is racing. I don't know if that's just because I'm really excited about the passage or it's because I've had four cups of coffee and three Diet Cokes this morning. Um, that may be the reason in part. Um, but I really, I just want to just... Look at the text. You tracking with me? Just, just look at the text that we're going through. I'm just going to read a few verses, and then we'll just jump in. I'm going to back up to verse 12 of chapter 1. We talked about last week. Giving thanks. Joyously giving thanks. I don't know who put that verse division there, but man. Joyously giving thanks to the Father who qualifies. Past tense, he made us fit so that we could share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For the Father rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And although, verse 21, although you were formerly alien and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, Yet he has now, notice the word now, it's in the position of emphasis, changing, it's a temporal marker. Yet he has now, today, reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Amen. Well, today we are in a fourth week in this series in the book of Colossians. We'll spend probably about 14 or 15 weeks in this book, and we're just going to slowly go verse by verse through the four chapters of the book of Colossians. 
And to be quite frank, in verses 15 through 23 of chapter 1, you could spend about a year just in these nine verses. And what we see is just this depth of theology and truth. And what we see also, it's defining who Christ truly is. Who is this King? Who is this Lord that we worship today? But the question I have is why? You know, why does Paul, all of a sudden, after he talks about the fathers, qualified, rescued, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, why does then Paul spend, you know, nine verses unpacking the person of Christ? And I believe, as I was studying this passage, it's deeper than Gnosticism. It's something, something is going on in the church in Colossae, something deep, something subtle, Something is influencing the church away from the gospel hope that they have heard. And the same thing that affects them, that affects each of us here today. This passage in Colossians 1, 15-23 talks about the lordship of Christ. We could also say his kingship or his rule over all creation. And I'm not going to get into all that. I should, I'm not going to unpack it quite yet. But it just talks about... That he is Lord, that he is king over all creation. He is master, he is ruler over all. But allow me to ask you the question. Sometimes I begin with a question, just kind of warm us up and hopefully chill out the caffeine that's blowing or flowing in my veins right now. I'm amped today. Okay. Um, Just describe to me, how does the world... Non-believers, how does the world think about Jesus? What are some of the names or adjectives they use? Prophet, good. Teacher, good man. What else? Very good. Yeah. What else? A lesser deity. That's true. There are several cults that have that exact representation. What else? What's that? Yeah, Savior. Myth? Good. That's very good. The following quote comes from C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus Christ. That I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man, who, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says that he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil himself. And you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Here today, I would imagine most of us view him as more, and hopefully not as a lunatic and liar, um, I imagine most of us see him as Lord, as the Son of God, as a Redeemer, King, the Christ. But what many of us don't see is that your opinion of Christ can change over time. 
that the heat of culture can change our opinions on him over time, that you are not immune to the constant pressure of the world, the constant weight of our culture's questions, doubts, and thoughts. That what the world and our culture says about Jesus Christ affects each of us every single day. But the effect of the culture and its opinions and its doubts and its thoughts are so slow that many of us fail to even see its effects on our lives. If you are skeptical that the culture truly can change your opinion of who Jesus is, then let me just prove it to you. If you're skeptical about that thought, let me just prove it to you. How many of you have ever known somebody that has just been a star for God? I mean, you put them up on a pedestal, you thought the world of them, you thought that they were just a rock star for Christ, maybe they're running up to people in the park all the time and evangelizing, and you just think that they're this is bulletproof Christian. And then you search their Facebook a couple years later, and then you wonder how they crashed and burned. You must have that experience before? You track with me? I've known so many people that have started out just following Christ with all of this passion and fervor, and they would quote Bible verses all of the time. I remember when I was a young man, there was this woman that was just this, a star for Christ. She quoted Bible verses all the time. She was super passionate. She loved the Lord. I was like, man, this person has Kevlar on her at all times. And then like two years later, I looked at her, and she was, I won't say, but she was doing all sorts of things that were antithetical to Christ himself. We have all seen people that we highly respect that just end up far from the Lord. But the question is, how does that happen over time? How do people get that way? How can one at one time proclaim the name of Christ and then crash and burn to forsake the name altogether? Because if we are not careful... We can let the influences of the world, the culture at large, the questions, the doubts deteriorate on us, affect us like the sun on a car. That no matter how spiritually mature you are, no matter how knowledgeable you are, no matter how long you've gone to church or what church you go to, no matter if you're a Calvinist or Arminian, don't worry, I'm not going there this morning, no matter how smart, knowledgeable, no matter how spiritually mature you are, no matter what, we are all susceptible to the influence of the world. And that's what we see in the church of Colossae. And I'll unpack this more as we go through these verses. But we see this church who is just absolutely on fire for the Lord. I mean, they have a wonderful description by Paul in chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. What do they describe as? That they hope in the gospel, that they have love in the spirit. And what else do they have? They have unity. They walk by the Spirit. They love one another. They hope in the gospel. They walk by faith. They are the church in the Middle East. If we could be like any church, let's be like this one. But there's a reason why Epaphras is not in modern-day Turkey. There is a reason why Epaphras is in Rome. He is panicked because he sees the church change over time. So what Paul does in this passage is he, he reminds them of the truth because Epaphras, their pastor, is terribly worried. I mean, if you walk a thousand miles to go 
counsel with somebody, you've got to be pretty worried about something. I'm just saying. I mean, they don't have telephones in this day. But Epaphras is in Rome for a reason. And we see this church begin to slide away from the message of the gospel. But let us not be, I'll just say it this way, the most vulnerable Christian to the culture and the arrows of the enemy is the Christian that feels that they are invincible. This church, if any church is made of Kevlar, it is this one. But we see them move away from the gospel hope that they have heard. We see the influence of the culture and the world at large. So what Paul does in this passage from really verses 12 through 23, that this section of scripture, Paul reminds them of the truth, the gospel hope that they have heard. And specifically in our text today, in verses 15 through 23, Paul is answering the question, who is the Father's beloved Son? Who is the Father's beloved Son? That is the question we are answering today. But then, really, the more important question is, how do we then respond? Now, you know, let's just pack a bunch of knowledge in our head, and we will kind of go there this morning, because we're talking about doctrine. But let's not just... Find something nice to learn, but let us actually apply it to our lives. So the question we're answering today is, who is the Father's beloved Son? So if you have your text in front of you, look at verses 15 through 23. This section breaks down into three main parts in the original language. Now, if I'm honest with you, we have been studying this book on staff I am amped this morning, okay? I hope you all are tracking with me, okay? If you need coffee, there's maybe some left in the foyer, okay? Uh, I drank it all this morning. I should just have a little pump up here, okay? Um, but if you, <laughs> if we've been studying this book in, as staff, and there are three main parts to this particular passage. You have 15 through 17, 18 through 19, and then 20 through 23. But there's a, there's a difficulty when we come into this passage of verses 15 through 23. Because what is Paul getting at? I mean, obviously he's talking about Christology. He's obviously talking about the person of Christ. But if we take a step back, you know, what's the overall theme or umbrella that this falls under? I had the hardest time, you know, figuring out what he's really getting at. But if you look in your text, look at verse 13 again. This is where Paul is going. Giving thanks to the Father who qualifies to share in the inheritance and the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. If you have a pen or a pencil or a highlighter, in my opinion, what Paul is doing is he is taking that one phrase and he is expanding it in verses 15 through 23. That who is the beloved Son? Who is he as a person? So, in my opinion, verses 15 through 23 is describing Jesus the Lord. Jesus as Lord over three different things. You see, quality number one in verses 15 through 17, quality number two in 18 through 19, and quality number three of Jesus as Lord is in verses 20 through 23. So, who is Jesus the Lord? You track with me? Who is the Father's beloved Son? Verse 15 of chapter 1. I'm going to read the passage and then we'll go back and unpack it. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. What is he saying here? What is, what is the theological doctrine he's getting at in verse 15? 
For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. What's he getting at there? All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In my opinion, verses 15 through 17, it is describing that Jesus is Lord over creation. Over all creation. Verse 16. For by him all things were created. So verses 15 through 16 is just unpacking Jesus is Lord. He is the king over the kingdom of his beloved son. Jesus is Lord in verse 13. And then Paul is expanding that one phrase. Jesus is Lord over creation or all created beings. Let's unpack it a little bit more. Look at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. If you notice in verse 15, there are basically two different phrases. You have part one and part two. Part one is that he is the image of the invisible God. If you have your notes, number one, he is God, is the blank, that he is God, the image of the invisible God. Here Paul is saying that Jesus is the portrait or the visible picture of the invisible God. The word image in the original language is the Greek word akon. So this word right here is the Greek word akon. It's where we get the word icon from. The word image implies representation or better yet manifestation. Here this word means that Jesus is the very substance and the essential embodiment of something or someone. In other words, what? That Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Don't take that to mean something you initially. What he's, Paul is really saying is that Jesus is fully divine. That when he was here on earth, he was fully God. And what does he say in John 14, 7 through 9? Jesus proclaims this very truth. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it will be enough for us. And what does Jesus say? Verse 9. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long? And yet you have not come to know me. Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Verse 15, Jesus is not a mode of God, but that Jesus is fully God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. One scholar puts it this way, like the, like the head of a sovereign imprinted on a coin. So Christ is the exact representation of the Father's being. That Jesus is fully divine, that he is the picture on earth of God's deity. and That doctrine is not really popular in our culture. What does our culture say? He combats this very thought. They say that Jesus is just a man or just a teacher or just a prophet or just a good man, but that is foolhardy. It's a lie from the pit of hell that Jesus did not leave that option open to us as we read in mere Christianity. That Jesus claimed and he proved that he is the image of the invisible God. That he is fully divine. Do not let the heat of the culture change your opinion of who he is. Stand firm. Jesus is Lord of all creation. But the question I had as I was just unpacking this text is why does Paul begin You know, why does Paul, what scholars say in verses 15 through 23, that this section is actually a song or a poem that Paul composes, okay? But the question I had is, why does Paul begin right off the bat with Jesus' deity? 
Because only God could be the Lord of what? All creation. Then if Jesus is just a man, then how could he proclaim? How could Paul proclaim that he is Lord, that he is master, that he is king, that he is ruler over all creation? Only God himself can take that. He is fully divine and he is Lord over all. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Jesus is Lord over all creation. He is God. And number two, he is preeminent. The second phrase in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. He is fully divine, the firstborn of all creation. There are some cults in the world, Jehovah's Witnesses in particular, that take phrases like these in the New Testament. And they say, well, you see right there, it says that he is the firstborn of all creation, that Jesus is created. That Jesus is God's greatest creation. Hey, friends, can I just say something real quick? This is off notes. But if, if Jesus is God's greatest creation, then he is not sufficient to pay for the sins of the world. Let's go home, if that is the case. There is an early church heresy that, that believed this, called Arianism. I won't talk about that too much. But that they believe that Jesus is God's greatest creation. And people take this phrase, the firstborn of all creation, to prove that. Okay, wait a second. If Paul was saying that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation and that he was created being, then he should have left off the first phrase. Right? He shouldn't have said just now that Jesus is fully divine. So Paul is not saying that he, Jesus is the greatest creation. What he's saying is that Jesus is preeminent, that he is before all things, that he is the leader of all things, that he has the rightful place as king, as master, and as lord. He is preeminent. That is what that phrase means. But then notice verse 16. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. What's that list doing there? All things were created through him and for him. Number three, if you have your notes, Jesus is Lord over all creation. He is God. He is preeminent and he is creator. All things were created through him and for him. Have you noticed in your text, you know, what's Paul doing? If you look at verse 16, I'll go back a little bit. I believe that this is the primary phrase in verse 16. For by him all things were created. Okay, what, what kind of things? Right? And then Paul just kind of unpacks everything he could possibly think of in a few words. Both in the heavens and earth. There and here. Everything that is visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, Paul is just making this gigantic list of all the things that Jesus has created. Wait a second. Wait. We think that um, God is not in control. I'm not going to go here too far. Okay, don't panic. But we feel like God is not really in control over government. And that God is not really in control over things that seem out of control what does he say whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities that all things are under the sovereign power of the son can i just speak a little bit how, you don't have to raise your hand to this but how many of you have ever either looked at our culture at large or just experienced something painful 
and you wonder if God truly is in control over all things. Am I the only one? I mean, when I go through just pain and trials and difficulties in life, when I'm in the valley of the shadow of death, when my child has illnesses, and when I'm in that dark space, we, the first thing we wonder is not really, is God good? I think that's way down the line. I think we really wonder, okay, does God hear my prayers, and is God truly in control? Does God truly listen to what I ask of Him? Because clearly, what I ask Him is not happening. And then also, is God really in control? Because how could a good God allow this to happen? But we see in verse 16 that He is creator, master, ruler, Lord over all things. Thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. God is sovereign over all even when we can't see him. The other night I was putting my four-year-old Olivia to bed, and um, uh, she, um, I was rocking her, and I usually say a few things to her right before she goes to bed. And I, uh, I just say to her, you know, Olivia, what do I want for you, baby, in life? And she said, to be a believer and follower of Jesus. And then I say, and then I say, what is truth? The Bible. And I say, okay, good, good job, baby. I'll give you a kiss. Um, and, um, and the other night, I, I'm sitting there. I lay her down in her crib, and she says to me, Daddy, Daddy, don't go. I don't want to be in bed alone. And then I said to her, baby, don't worry. Jesus is with you. And that four-year-old little voice being doing this right here, okay, <laughs> like, like in the darkness, and she's like, I don't see him. And I said, baby, just trust me. He's with you. And then she said, silly God, okay. <laughs> but, but how can I give her that assurance? Because of the gospel hope that I have heard. Because of the truth of the scripture. That I see that Jesus is not just a man, a prophet, a teacher that died on the cross. But that he is the image of the invisible God. That he is creator of all things. That he is sovereign. That he is in control over everything that we see. But then notice with your text, number four, he is God, he is preeminent, he is creator. Number four, he is before all things. In a sense, I think he's kind of summarizing verses 15 and 16 with that phrase. And in him, all things hold together. Number four, he is the sustainer. This phrase tells me that not only does he sustain life as we know it, but that he will return and make all things new. In him all things hold together. The word hold together is a perfect tense verb. And the actual word is a combination of two words. It is soon and histomy, which means stand and with. That because of him all things stand together, they hold together from past with continuing ongoing results. And that at the perfect time Jesus Christ will come bring forth a new heaven and new earth and all of the promises that he's given to us in life will come true. He is the sustainer of life itself. So quality number one, that Jesus is Lord over all creation. But then notice verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he would come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness 
to dwell in Him. Number two, the Lord Jesus is Lord over creation and recreation. Now, if you're wondering if that's a typo up here or not, it's not. Um, I purposely capitalized the C so I wouldn't say recreation, okay, because that wouldn't make any sense. Jesus is Lord over creation and recreation. Wait a second. Where is his recreation, friends? Where, is, where, where are they gathered? This place. We are God's recreated being. He is the head of the body, which is the church. That we are the body of Christ. He is the head. The body does not work without the head. Okay, I'm just saying. It controls the body. It leads the body. He is also head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. We are Jesus' recreated beings. The word church in the original language is ecclesia. It means called out ones. That we are called out of the domain of darkness and what transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son that we are recreated that this is a gathering of people that have been bought with the price this is a gathering of family this is a gathering of the body of christ a spiritual organism that represents christ's kingship this is a gathering of people that were called out that were rescued, transferred out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. That we are recreated beings. We are made new. That our old identity before Christ is no longer valid. That all of the ways that we measured our success, that we find value in the world, we now have a new identity as God's child. What does it say in 2 Corinthians 5.17? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away, and behold, all things, or behold, new things have come. We are recreated beings, and Jesus is our Lord. That he has called us out of the domain of darkness to a new family. And if we love one another then we evangelize the world. If we love one another, we bring glory to the Father. If we love one another, we bring unity to the body. And if we love one another through that love, love covers a multitude of sins. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are made new and you have a new family. I've said this almost every week I have been up here. But in the beginning... Paul says to the faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. The word brethren means adelphois, means brothers and sisters, that we are part of the family of God. My question for you is almost every week, is that do you see the people in this room, the person in front of you, behind you, and beside you, do you see them as a spiritual family to you? Do you feel... It doesn't even matter what you feel, to be honest. Do you believe that they are brothers and sisters in Christ to you? That we inherit together eternal life, the earth, and the promises of God. We inherit a new identity. We are no longer far from God, but we are adopted by God. Verse 18, he is the head of the body the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. 
The reason Jesus reigns as Lord over all that are called out of darkness is because of what? And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Why is he my Lord? It's because what? He rose from the dead. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Notice in your text in verse 18, so that for the purpose or result, he himself will come to have first place in everything. Not only has God created all things, thrones, dominions, and rulers, and authorities, but now because of the blood of Christ, he is now Lord over his recreated beings. Because why? Because he rose from the dead, showing that the sacrifice on the cross was sufficient to pay for our sin. One commentator says this, The one who is lauded as Lord of creation in verses 15 through 17 is celebrated as Lord of recreation in verses 18 through 19. Christ, the second Adam, restores that which is broken and reigns over his body, the church. So who is the Father's beloved Son? He is Lord over creation, recreation, and he is Lord over reconciliation. Notice verse 20 in your text. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, that Jesus is Lord over reconciliation. The word reconciliation in verse 20 is actually three different Greek words kind of smushed together. I looked up the etymology. Now, what is that word? Okay, The etymology is how the word came about, Okay, the beginning of the word. That word in the original language is the word, I'm going to have a hard time saying, apokatalasso. Apokatalasso. Apo means from, kata means against, and lasso means to change or to bring together. Wait a second. So Jesus, let's go back to verse 20. And through him to reconcile, to change what was once from against God, that we have been brought to back together. Reconciled all things themselves. I believe that reconciliation and peace here modify one another and made peace through the blood of his cross. Wait a second, what does that mean? That because of the blood of Christ, that we have peace before a just and perfect Father. And because the peace has been made through the perfect sacrifice of the Son, that we have been brought back. That what was once broken in the Garden of Eden, what was once broken by our father Adam, that we inherited in Romans chapter 5, the second Adam, a more perfect Adam, came and he died to bring us back to the Father so that we could stand before him justified, being at peace before a perfect and, and just God. The Lord Jesus is our peace. He is reconciled. And notice and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace. Past tense, friends. That if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you stand before the Father, justified, declared innocent of your guilt because of what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross. Let me just ask the question. Has that gotten old? I hope not. Because that's the message of the gospel. Can I just say something else? We'll see here in just a moment. The point of this passage is not just a theological nice treatise of who Christ is. The point is that we would stand firm. That we would be able to set aside the doubts and thoughts of the world. The first thing 
that the world kind of convinces us of, of the gospel, is not that Jesus is not, it's that it's just kind of boring. You know? That I've been reconciled with God. But that, this is the message of the gospel, friends. Jesus is our peace. Uh, to tell you a quick story, I, uh, in my Grissom High School days, I was uh, graduated in 03, go Tigers, okay. And um, I was one of those closet Christians, so to speak. I didn't take my faith seriously, and uh, I think I went to First Priority one time. And if you remember First Priority, it was this Christian group that met uh, before, church, before school began. And Larry, the security guard, was giving the devotion that day. And to be quite frank, I didn't even know Larry was a Christian. And 20 years later, I still remember what Larry said. He said that Jesus is our peace. And he said it again and again and again and again and again. So I guess he taught me something about sermon preaching. That's why I repeat myself incessantly when I preach. It's to stick it in your head. But Jesus is our peace. I never understood what that meant. But now I get it. That because of the death of Christ, and because his sacrifice was sufficient, that we can stand before a just and perfect Father at peace, reconciled, brought back to him, restored what was broken, so that we could walk with him and have a relationship with him. But why is we see that Jesus is Lord over creation, over his recreated beings, i.e. the church, over the reconciliation. But why is he my Lord? Why is he my king? Why is he my ruler? Verse 21. And although you were formerly, notice the change in pronouns, and although you were formerly alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now, if you have a pen or a highlighter, circle the word now. That is in a position of emphasis. If you were to look this verse up in the original language, that one word would just kind of pop off the page. But now he has reconciled you in his flesh and body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Why is Jesus my Lord? Because he reconciled me to the Father. Because peace has been made, he is my Lord. Because I have been brought back to the Father, he is my Lord. Because the second Adam was not like the first, he is my Lord. Because the better Adam, the righteous and perfect Adam, Jesus Christ... Peace has been made to satisfy the justice of God. Reconciliation has taken place. He is my Lord. Because I am now presented before the Father as holy and blameless and beyond reproach, justified, declared innocent of my guilt I inherited from my father Adam. He is my Lord. Because the Son's death was sufficient, He is my Lord. Because I can stand before the Father declared innocent of my guilt, He is my Lord. We, can I just say something in modern church culture? We think of serving Jesus as Lord of our life as an option. It, it ain't, y'all, okay? Good Alabama talk right there. It ain't. Serving Christ as my Lord, bowing before him in awe and reverence, casting my life before him as my master is the only option. And he deserves it. He deserves my allegiance. He deserves me to follow him. 
What does he say? Anyone who wants to follow me must what? Deny themselves, take up the cross, and follow him. He is our Lord. He is our King. He is our Master. He is our Kurios. And he demands our desire to serve and follow him fully. But so what? You know? What's the application of this passage? What's interesting about this passage is the application is actually in the scripture itself in verse 23. We saw in last week, we saw in verse 12, that the application of the Father's rescue plan is joyously giving thanks. But then notice in your text, verse 23, this is the application of the truth. This is why Paul does this Christological hymn. If indeed you continue in the faith, Firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, was made a minister, Jesus' Lord, so stand firm. That's his point. Do not, what does it say? Do not move away from the gospel hope that you have heard. The truth that you have heard from Epaphras, your pastor, do not move away from that. Let that be your anchor in stormy seas. Let that be your foundation in this world. Do not move away, but stand firm. But friends, think about this. He's not talking to the Corinthian church. Okay? They got problems. All right? They got real problems. Okay? Some guy was having an affair with his stepmother, they're getting drunk together, okay, it's just a complete disaster. But that's not this church. This church is totally different. They are mature believers in Jesus Christ. They love in the Spirit. They walk by faith. They have hope in the Gospel. They are rooted and grounded. They have this wonderful pastor named Epaphras. But something is going on. And it's not just Gnosticism. It's deeper than that. The culture in Turkey, around the church in Colossae, is influencing them away from the gospel hope that they have heard. The doubts of the world are whispering in their ears. That are you sure that Jesus guy is fully divine? Are you sure that Jesus guy truly is the hope of the world? Are you sure that Jesus guy is the only way to heaven? But the whispers of culture have not stopped in 2,000 years. Amen? We hear a false narrative, a false gospel every day we wake up. That's why I'm so terrified for my children. Okay? All right? And your parents relate to that in the room? Because there are whispers of the culture onto our children that there is more than one way to heaven. Friends, it ain't so. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That we as a culture can prioritize certain parts of the Bible. That Jesus is love and he always cares about these types of things. And not about the morality that God demands, friends. There are all these little whispers in our culture that are contradictory to the truth. And if we aren't careful, it can move us away from the truth that we know. What does he say in verse 23? Not moved away from the gospel hope that you have heard. They are not above falling to the temptations and thoughts of the world, and neither are we. 
No matter how mature you are, no matter where you grow up, no matter what church you go to, no matter how many times you read the Bible and all this kind of stuff, that we are all susceptible to the temptations of the world, but despite it all, stand firm. I heard a story of a very famous preacher, and he has a note card on his desk. And every time he's faced with temptation, he picks up that note card. And on one side, it says all of the consequences that happen if he falls to temptation. And then on the other side of that note card, it says, by the grace of God, go with I. That man that all of us know in this room, I'm not going to say his name, but all of us know in this room, that man who just seems like this invincible, impenetrable Christian knows that he is flawed and that he is susceptible to the whispers of the world. And we all are. Stand firm. If your anchor is moving on stormy seas, if you're beginning to question the doctrine that you know to be true, then remind yourself of the truth in the scripture. And friends, can I just speak? The world will never fully agree with what we believe. Let's not try to make it politically correct, okay? Let's just not try. Because it ain't, y'all. It ain't. Why? It will never be politically correct. Because why? They are in the domain of darkness that we have been rescued from and transferred to the kingdom of His beloved Son, that their eyes are darkened. They will never fully aligned with the scripture and that's okay we have the truth stand firm don't try to just find a way to make it work it won't believe the truth don't move away i have known so many christians that have started out on the path to follow jesus seminary grads of mine friends of mine and they go on Facebook every day now. Ten, it's only been ten years. I mean, goodness gracious, how quick can you? Okay? I mean, they just completely created. I just, I'm like, do they read the same Bible I do? I mean, they have just been moved away. The pressures of the culture, the pressures at large have pushed them from the Lord. When you feel like your anchor is moving, move back to the source of truth. Who is Jesus? He's not just a good man. He's not just a prophet, a teacher. He's not that. But he is Lord. He is ruler. He is master over all. Me, recreation, all creation, he is my Lord, He is my King, and He is my Master, and we serve Him fully and let us stand firm in the midst of our cultural difficulties and their thoughts and their questions. Let me close with a thought, and then we will pray. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything, except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor does any man 
light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Stand firm. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for the truth of your word. But we are all susceptible to becoming like the church in Colossae. That the temptations and the questions and the doubts of the culture cause us, over time, to question the gospel hope that we have heard. Lord, I pray that that would not be so, but that we would put on the armor of God. That we would understand what we believe. That we would surround ourselves with Christians that could stimulate us towards love and good deeds. That we would walk by your spirit. That we would pray before you. That we would pursue a relationship with you. That we would dig into your word and to the source of truth that we know. Let us not just compromise. Let us love people in the world, but let us not be of the world. For we are different. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for Calvary Bible Church. I thank you for this church. I thank you that I can spend a year going through the book of Colossians and that it's perfectly acceptable. And thank you just that we can study the word of God together and how it just gives us life. And, um, Lord, I pray for those that do not know you as Savior, as Lord. They don't have a relationship with you. Lord, I pray that they would come before a good master, a good ruler, and that they would believe in you, and that they would be born again and changed, and that they would serve you all their days, because once they believe, they are reconciled, and they are new creation. Lord, may we stand firm in the midst of our difficult, dark world. In Jesus' name, amen.